0: This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. From time to time, you have a conversation, and you know, even before the conversation happens, basically where it's going to go, how it will begin, and how it will end. Well, I'm about to start a conversation that is anything but predictable. The conversation today is going to be with Stanley Fish. And I can tell you right now, I really have no idea where this conversation is going. Stanley Fish is an intellectual force of energy, one of the most interesting people in the American intellectual scene. He is currently the Davidson Kahn Distinguished University Professor of Humanities and Law at Florida International University. He's been there since 2005. He's the author of many works, including... The uh, the very interesting work, Is There a Text in This Class, The Authority of Interpretive Communities, The Trouble with Principle, Save the World on Your Own Time, and most recently, How to Write a Sentence. Dr. Fish, welcome to Thinking in Public.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be back.
0: It's great to continue the conversation with you. I've looked forward to this. And in anticipation, my mind was drawn back to one essay you wrote back in 1996, that quite frankly I read and reread from time to time just coming to terms with it. It's entitled, Why We Can't All Just Get Along. And in it, you make the point that many Christians seem not to understand the kinds of claims that we ought to be making that create the problem of uh, a direct collision with enlightenment values. I'm just thinking about the state of Christian intellectual conversation in a secular age. What are you telling us here?
1: Well, I'm telling you that, uh, uh, among other things, that what enlightenment liberalism involves, in part at least, is a withdrawal from strong claims. And instead, the emphasis is placed on process, on the assurance that every voice will be heard, and no voices will either be anointed in advance, or demonized in advance. What this means, as I've put it somewhat tendentiously elsewhere is that liberalism is a brief against conviction if you have a strong conviction and by strong conviction i mean a conviction that on a certain key matter what you believe is in fact true and true not only for you uh but for everyone and also you believe that those who have not yet seen this truth need to see it and should be brought to it if you have a if you have a strong view in relation to your own beliefs and convictions like that, Enlightenment liberalism will be suspicious of you and begin saying of you or calling you things like fanatic, rigid, doctrinaire, and dogmatic.
0: Well, indeed, we've been called all those things. And uh, yes, what <laughs> are the things you deal with in your essay? And in fact, you deal with three authors making arguments from a Christian perspective about. what they they would assert should be uh, a corrective to the marginalization of uh, strong Christian truth claims in the public culture. And you say it just can't happen.
1: Well, it can't happen except on the terms that Enlightenment liberalism uh, authorizes. The three authors, uh, all very, very uh, smart men, uh, were trying to find a way to make the liberal sphere of intellectual conversation more hospitable to Christian discourse, to give Christian or religious discourse in general a place at the table. But the table is one structured so that no one is supposed to win the conversational context. It's rather the, the virtue, at least uh, from this point of view, is in having a, a conversation um, in which everyone's views are respected But to go back to what I said earlier, if in fact you have strong convictions and believe that those uh, who hold other convictions are wrong and that the convictions that they espouse are false, uh, you are not going to accord them respect because it is not, uh, I believe, uh, either intellectually or morally uh, right uh, to respect falseness and error. But again, that kind of talk, the talk that I've just um, indulged in is is not welcomed in the in the liberal marketplace of ideas
0: well indeed that is why these three authors wrote their works uh, speaking of michael mcconnell and stephen carter and george marsden and yes. when you come all to the, brilliant yeah. all
1: brilliant men and committed christians
0: when you come to the end of your argument you make a point however that I, i've never really seen a christian pick up and uh, and deal with. You make the argument that if indeed these Christians believe as they believe, and, and we know they do, you say they should not be calling merely for a place at the table. They should be calling for the, uh, more or less, the establishment of the truth at the expense of the false.
1: That is true. That is true. That is, that, that is what follows. Uh, now, uh, one other way to deal with the position uh, of strong uh, uh, of, of strong religious conviction in a politically liberal universe is to withdraw from that universe and not attempt to work in it um, in, a, in, in an active way. To regard yourself, and here I'm borrowing a term from a very good friend of mine, the theologian Stanley Horowitz, to regard yourself as a resident alien, uh rather than uh as someone uh who is uh pitching in in a strong way um, and that's and, and that's that 's another possible way uh, of, of 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 dealing uh with a liberal world if, if as a committed religious person uh, you you find yourself situated in it.
0: Well, and indeed, Professor Hauerwas, uh, the author of that book, Resident Aliens, along with the uh, the man who's now the bishop, the Methodist bishop of Alabama, Will Willman.
1: W- Willman, yeah. Yeah,
0: w- w- was indeed, along with Willman, uh, teaching at Duke University, where you taught for many years. And so it wasn't a withdrawal as in an Amish or kind of a radical Anabaptist withdrawal into a separate community. It was an attempt within the universe of a major American research university to continue the conversation.
1: But they were both in the same place in that particular university that was a holdover uh, from its Methodist establishment. So they are teaching in the Divinity School, although also having conversations with faculty and students um, in in other programs. And to some extent, uh, a true Divinity School atmosphere is, apart from, even if it is situated in close physical proximity to, Uh, The rest of the university. But you mentioned the Amish and that's an interesting case, uh, quite literally, because of the famous Supreme Court case, Wisconsin versus Yoder. Right. Where the Supreme Court uh, one time and one time only allowed a sectarian group, the uh, Amish, uh, to withdraw from the generally applicable law that required all other parents to keep their children in school or in some kind of formal education uh, uh, through the age, I believe, of 16. And the reason that the court did this is because they were assured by the Amish experience and philosophy that the state would never have any trouble with these people, and indeed that the state would not even be called on to provide these people uh, very many services. So I've always looked at that case, which is anomalous um, in the Supreme Court uh, history, as a self-congratulatory gesture uh, by the liberal establishment, uh, but one which they knew wouldn't cost them anything.
0: Well, you say they uh, the, knew it wouldn't cost them anything, but the Yoder decision really laid the legal frown, uh, groundwork for uh, what became the homeschooling movement in America.
1: It did, uh, and also uh, it, it it is quoted um, – uh, it, it was quoted and requoted in those days when uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, was being debated right. and then passed and then weakened um, – uh, although it still um, has some force yes that's one of the interesting things about a supreme court decision uh whatever reasons or motives the justices might have had for doing something uh what they do that is the words they write uh then become available uh to any number of parties uh for uh, a very long uh time and of course they they that is the justices cannot control uh, what happens to their decisions and cannot uh, be guaranteed that their motives will be the motives of those who follow them.
0: And that's especially true when you're dead. And
1: uh, so I've I've heard.
0: (laughs) Well, I want to go back to your essay again, 1996. uh, You basically said, and and you put this uh, in the voice of someone who was responding to Stephen Carter, we already had the Enlightenment and religion lost um and and you're really making the case that in a liberal society and and by that we mean the the, the kind of uh participatory democracy the, uh, the 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 regime of reason and process strong conviction just just doesn't have a place and and so those of us and I'm speaking here as an evangelical Christian who for whom conviction is first and foremost uh I'm just trying to process exactly where you would uh, where you would have us to understand this. You, you, you sound it at, at moments like Robert Audi uh, saying that the only uh, entrance uh, to the uh, the public square has to be with an absolute neutrality of both argument and of motivation. But then elsewhere in your writings, you say something that sounds quite different. I'm helping to figure this out.
1: Well, that's a very good reference. Uh, Audi is on uh, one end of a continuum, and as you correctly indicated, he not only believes, as some others do, that when you walk into the public sphere, you should always uh, translate uh, your uh, proposals, however uh, religious may be their origin, into secular terms. Audi is even more severe. He says you should not have religious motivations in mind when you think about uh, Taking action um, in the public uh, sphere, uh, but then uh, at other times, of course, I am, uh, as you know, I am, I am saying that uh, such a uh, such a separation or comp- or compartmentalization um, is um, an imp- is an impossible one, and that the demands that are being made under the slogan of being fair to religion. Couldn't possibly be fair to religion um, if the primary thrust of religion—that is, to announce, proclaim, and spread the truth—is blunted.
0: Well, interestingly, you refer in your essay and in uh, other other uh, species of your writing, you you make the implication that there are certain forms of religion that have made peace with the Enlightenment. Uh, you refer to Lockean yes. Protestantism, which uh, you know I thought was a fascinating way of talking about mainline, more liberal Protestantism. And the secular world doesn't see that kind of Protestantism, uh, which doesn't make truth claims, as a threat.
1: Not at all. Uh, and uh, what marks that form of Protestantism, which you can uh, see uh, beautifully articulated in Locke's letter concerning toleration, is a fidelity to the public-private split. Um, In American life, that is, in American political life, as structured uh, by Enlightenment thinking, religion is something that you should be able to fully exercise so long as that exercise is private and so long as you understand that your religious life is a personal one, the relationship between you and your God, most appropriately, therefore, exercised, in the home, uh, in the church, in the mosque, in the synagogue, and uh, I guess most centrally in the heart, the public square or sphere uh, is then an area in which you are supposed to leave your religious convictions at home. Religions which are able to do that, religions uh, which do uh, not very nicely uh, com- conform themselves to the public public private distinction are not going to have any difficulties uh, in the modern Enlightenment uh liberal world. But once a religion begins to act in a way that suggests a desire to have its tenets and beliefs written into law or to become a part, continuing part of public institutions, um uh, the uh the liberal uh Forces in our society, the forces of liberalism, become very nervous. Uh, so, but again, there's always, you know, there's always the, the sequestering move, which is not only the move performed by the Amish, but is performed with the blessing of the New York uh, State judicial system, uh, uh, performed by Orthodox Jews, uh, who are given control uh, in at least one instance of a town and a school district. Uh, in, in New York, um, there's an endless interplay uh, between uh, all of the uh, possible forms of dealing with the religion that I've been uh, naming, um, and uh, everything keeps on coming back and returning, and I don't myself see uh, that there'll be any, ever any resolution uh, to this set of problems. We'll keep acting them out over and over again.
0: Well, what makes a conversation like this so powerful is that you uh, learn something you otherwise wouldn't know, and you hear something you otherwise wouldn't hear. And so I want to ask you, just point blank, as you're speaking to an evangelical Christian, and I ask you, what is the place for a a Christian entry into modern intellectual life? What would you respond?
1: I would say that uh, since 1996, when the SAU were referring to was published, things have changed markedly and changed in ways that some people would applaud uh, and other people uh, would find uh, distressing. Uh, I do believe that the old set of assumptions uh, that, uh, in a sense, told religion, uh, yes, uh, please be exercised, but only at home, that set of assumptions has been successfully challenged. Um, in many areas, in part because of the faith-based initiatives that were launched in the George W. Bush administration, now continued, at least in spirit, uh, by, uh, uh President, uh, Obama, uh, who always speaks strongly of the place of faith, uh, in, in his life. And I, uh, and I believe that, uh, in terms of actual First Amendment jurisprudence, there has been more and more of a breach of the so-called wall of separation. So much so that the Establishment Clause, which was originally read as forbidding, uh, even this—these are Madison's words, as I'm sure you know— even three pence of expense on religious institutions. Uh, the Establishment Clause no longer adheres uh, to that uh, narrow reading; uh, is, is, is no longer read, rather, uh, in 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 that narrow way. And in recent years, there has been more and more commerce between the funds of the state uh, and the maintenance of religious establishments. It also remains the case that. Being religious or claiming to be religious or claiming to be a person of faith is still an absolute requirement in our American political life. I can easily imagine, of course, a woman being elected president. Uh, I can easily imagine a Jew being elected president. I can even imagine, although this might take little time, a gay person being elected president. But it's hard for me to imagine an atheist being elected
0: president. I knew when I started the conversation with Professor Fish that I'd want to go at that essay he wrote in 1996 for First Things, Why We Can't Just All Get Along. And the reason for that is because he ends it in a place that I think many evangelicals, indeed many theists, don't want to go. He says that if we listen to ourselves and to the truth claims that we're making, we should not be asking just for a place at the table. We should be asking for the falsehood to be eradicated and the truth to be recognized. Now, there's a sense in which we know that that is exactly right. And and we have or should have reflexes to know that when we when we under-display, when we under-articulate, when we under-claim the gospel, we're doing something deeply injurious to our Christian testimony. At the same time, we also know that there's a difference between preaching that takes place in our church And a conversation in the secular square where we're trying to find an opportunity to speak legitimately with integrity as Christians to folks who are not ready to hear us on those same terms. That's why talking to someone like Stanley Fish is so important. It's really an exercise in doing what we know we ought to be doing. Dr. Stanley Fish has been known as a provocateur within the academic environment for the, the really the extent of his career. And with many different twists and turns and different institutions, he has started a conversation that tends to continue in his wake. Dr. Fish, let me ask you, when you deal with the issue of academic freedom, you knew you were stepping into an ongoing controversy, and you've made some strange intellectual bedfellows in your argument about academic freedom. How did that come about?
1: Well, I was always disturbed when I was a faculty member and before I became an administrator by the ease with which the phrase academic freedom was thrown around by faculty members who, as far as I could tell, were just looking for a way to avoid uh, fulfilling their responsibilities. Academic freedom was, was understood uh, by many to be uh, a carte blanche ticket I can do anything I like in my classroom. Uh, I don't even necessarily have to hold every class that is in the schedule. I don't have to stick to the syllabus as the catalog prints it and as the students who entered the class uh, read it, et cetera, et cetera. Academic freedom has also uh, been invoked as a reason uh, for bringing one's politics directly into the classroom and attempting to steer one's students into some ideological direction. I always knew in my heart that that was wrong, and in recent years I've begun to think about it and to write about it. And basically what I've said is that the term academic freedom, uh, perhaps an unfortunate uh, phrase, should be understood with the emphasis on the word academic as opposed to the word freedom. And too many people seize on the word freedom in the phrase academic freedom and take it to mean that they are free to do as they like. And what I want to say in general is no. what you are free to do or should be free to do within certain constraints is the academic job but that if you're not doing that academic job because you're irresponsible in your pedagogical habits or because you've decided to trade in the academic job for a political job or a therapy job, if you're not doing that, then you should have no freedom at all because you're no longer performing as an academic. So that's the basic argument.
0: Yeah, well, and it is a very controversial argument. You place it alongside what has been the long thought definition or, uh, shall we say, uh, inclination of academic freedom is put forward by groups like the American Association of University Professors and uh, lately by uh, one of its seminal figures and that is Carrie Nelson and uh, you know what are the interesting questions I have in all of this and uh, I guess it comes down to, to this question given the prevailing understanding of academic freedom in the larger American University culture how was anyone ever judged to be outside of that freedom
1: well that is a good question uh, in fact, uh, I wrote about a professor in Canada who was who is or was a professor of physics um in uh, one of the good Canadian universities. What he decided to do was a, a, something he gave the name academic squatting to. By that he meant, when he was assigned, and this is not not a hypothetical example, this is actually what happened. When he was assigned to teach a course in environmental physics, uh, he told the students on the first day two things. First, you're all going to get A pluses, and we're not going to do environmental physics, we're going to do political activism, by which he meant, not study political activism, which would be an appropriate academic object of study, done according to the usual academic standards of of evidence and assessment. Now, students in this course were going to learn how to be political activists. And for him, academic freedom uh, was a mantra that justified this action, even though, as I pointed out, um, he was busily subverting the very institution that was giving him a room to teach in and a salary uh, to live on. So how the same? One more thing: the yeah. same expansive notion of the phrase "academic freedom" uh, led, for example, in England uh, to a lo- uh, to a great extent, and in this country to a lesser extent, the boycott by some academics of Israeli institutions, and the refusal to deal with professionally deal with. Israeli academics, unless they, that is the Israeli academics, repudiated the policies of their own government. How in the world you can get from being a member of an academic community to acting in that, uh, you know, obviously political way, has always been beyond me.
0: Well, it may be beyond you, but I'm going to stretch you on that because uh, you've been a department chair in a major university. You've been an academic dean and uh, now a distinguished university professor. So you've been on all sides of this equation. You know, what is it about America's academic culture and its intellectual environment that that leads to these kinds of outrageous claims? And and why is it that so many professors uh, seem not to want to teach their discipline but to teach something else? How did that come about?
1: I don't know exactly, uh, it has something to do, uh, with the fact that many in the 1960s who saw their immediate revolutionary hopes, uh, fail or not, or not completely succeed transferred those hopes to the academy where they felt perhaps that although we can't win the political battle, uh, in the fashion we had hoped to win it, we can win nevertheless by producing generations of students who will do the kind of work that we believe should be done in and for society. So it was a and this. sometimes the rhetoric that accompanied uh, this shift was the rhetoric of unfreezing or uh, uncongealing uh the ivory you know the 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 uh, long held prejudices biases and commonplace traditions of the ivory tower so it was a revolt against ivory towerism which was thought of um as uh, as harmfully hermetic sealing the academy and uh students uh, uh, or, uh away uh uh, from the society uh, at large. So, and I'm sure there are other factors. Uh, there were other factors involved too. Uh, one of them, which we we would uh, have to take about three programs to discuss, was the introduction of a certain form of uh, theory, especially into the social sciences and the humanities, um, and the politicization of that theory at a certain point, so that there was thought to be a passage, a direct passage, from a certain account of the way in which language and evidence worked to the way in which you were supposed to conduct yourself in courses. I don't think that that was a legitimate leap, um, but it was made uh, by uh, many. So those are just some of the reasons uh, that,
0: that this has occurred. Now you mentioned the humanities. Uh, you also make the argument that the, uh, the, the the worth of the humanities as areas of intellectual endeavor, as, as uh, areas of the university curriculum, uh, much under siege, we might say, in these budgetary times. Uh, yes, you say are. that the uh, the the worth of of these fields of study has to be intrinsic. That uh, in fact you go to say their extrinsic worth is nil. Uh, well,
1: uh, nil is. I no doubt said that, and and it was uh, an exaggeration. Nil is an exaggeration. But what I do mean is that if the justification for the humanities must take the form of some kind of external measurement, then the humanities has lost that argument before it begins. Because if you begin to ask questions like, well, what what benefit will accrue to the state and its citizens – by having a series of courses in late medieval art or higher mathematics or medieval Christianity, uh, the answer to that question is not much benefit that I can see, because the benefit that is being sought and the justification that is being demanded is a bottom-line benefit and a bottom-line justification. The humanities, I do not think, can appropriately offer That justification. And once they stop to do so, they're playing in the other guy's court. That is, they are uh, acceding to the demand, please justify what you do in my terms. And if you respond to that, you, of course, have already given up your terms. So what I'm saying is that, no, the humanities must defend themselves in their terms. And those terms are, it may seem paradoxical, the terms of being useless. Uh, at least in the context of certain justificatory demands. And uh, so that the, yeah. once the humanities enter this justificatory, uh, this, this sweepstakes of justification, they're going to lose every time, which is exactly uh, what has been happening, especially in, in higher public education.
0: Your new book is entitled How to Write a Sentence and How to Read One. I have to tell you, I found reading this an absolute delight. It's very different than anything, at least I have found, that you've written before. It's uh, it, it's uh, really a celebration of uh, the power of the sentence and uh, a very fascinating tour through English literature.
1: Yes, it is. Uh, it's actually two books uh, which I tried to bring together. Uh, one is, uh, as suggested by the title, How to Write a Sentence an account of how sentences work and why sentences fall apart and what kind of exercises that you might perform that would put you in better command uh, of the structure of sentences. And there my key uh, statement is that a sentence is a structure of logical relationships, and I spend some time uh, trying to explain exactly what that means. But I start also from the very beginning illustrating the uh, grammatical or craft points I'm making uh, with uh, by uh, some very nice and indeed great sentences. And at a certain point in the book, uh, the formal instruction uh, recedes, uh, never quite goes away, but recedes from the foreground. And the uh, immense pleasure of encountering absolutely stupendously great sentences, sentences that you can marvel at in the same way that you marvel at a high-level athletic performance. Uh, That then takes uh, center stage, um, and the book begins to, as it were, ride on the tracks of these absolutely uh, amazing authors who can do things with the very same language that you and I use every day that you and I would never be capable of doing.
0: Well, I found myself delighting in so many of these sentences. Uh, John Updike uh, writing about a, a baseball in the air, uh, yeah. things like that. But when you come to the end of your book and you make an amazing an amazing statement. You, you say this. Sentences can save us. Who could ask for anything more? That's okay, right. save us from what, for what? Well,
1: I'm here, as you know, uh, explaining a passage from one of Gertrude Stein's lectures in America. Uh, and she's talking about the incredible experience of harnessing yourself to the power of sentences that you did not write. Um and and she says, I like the feeling, the everlasting feeling of sentences as they diagram themselves. And then she adds, in that way one is completely possessing something and incidentally oneself. And by what she means is that if you start thinking about languages and its use in a self-regarding way, you will not get anywhere because your own ego and ambitions and projects will always be getting in the way. But if you submit uh, through analysis, through reading, through rereading, reading uh, to the extraordinarily great sentences of great authors, their art will become yours by proxy. And you will, because you have submitted, emerge with a better self than the self that you might have had had you persisted um, in your egotistical ways. Now, as I'm sure you recognize, there's a not very submerged religious uh, argument uh, underneath this. Because the submission of the small self Uh, to a larger power and authority, uh, which in effect makes the small self large because it has given up its own province, is precisely the message of many religions and certainly the message of Christianity. And that's why I end the main body of the book with my favorite sentence from the book, which is a sentence from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And that sentence describes the moment when Bunyan, Bunyan's hero, Christian, uh, having discovered that he is burdened with original sin and wanting to rid himself of it, starts to run from his village toward a light that he barely sees. And now here is the sentence. Now he had not run far away from his own door, but his wife and children, perceiving it, began crying after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on, crying, life, life, eternal life. That is both a great sentence, absolutely an amazing sentence, the way in which um, it is structured, and a lesson in what it is that sentences can and cannot do. Sentences can send us in the direction of something greater than they and therefore greater than us. So sentences, in a way, perform their best office when they turn us in the direction of life, life, eternal life.
0: I have to end by asking you the question that came to my mind at the end of your latest book. In a secular age, is it perhaps true that for most sentences are all that remain?
1: Yes. Yes. And that is what I call in the book, uh, at a certain point, the religion of art. And when the liberal uh, ethos doesn't so much as give up religion, uh, but puts it in a corner, it has to worship something. And what it usually worships is art, and one form of that art uh, are sentences. But uh, I believe that the sentences that really matter... Uh, don't in neither invite nor allow uh, that worship but in fact encourage you and invite you to search for something greater
0: every time i have the opportunity for conversation with stanley fish i Mm -hmm. realize there is more to talk about than even i knew when we started dr fish thank you for joining me today for thinking in public
1: oh thank you so much it's been a great pleasure
0: well look forward to another time for another conversation i
1: certainly hope so
0: I told you up front that I wasn't exactly sure where the conversation was going, and that was true at almost every point. And it's because when you're talking with Stanley Fish, the roads of conversation that open before you are multiple, and yet you have to choose. I'm glad we chose the conversation we had. It's given us a lot to think about. I think it's fair to say that most evangelical Christians underestimate the challenge before us, the intellectual challenge we're right and ready to look at the apologetic challenge in terms of framing arguments in defense of the gospel. But in reality, the larger intellectual challenge is even having the opportunity to be heard. That's where someone like Stanley Fish is interesting. In the essay he wrote, entitled, Why We Can't All Just Get Along, he makes the point that the Enlightenment happened, and just to take the Enlightenment on its own terms modern liberal societies make it almost impossible for the kind of argument that an evangelical Christian would want to make about the things that are most important to us. Now, in the course of the conversation, he remarked about some of the changes that have come about in terms of American public life, but I think the challenge that he saw back in 1996 and directed towards Christians is exactly where we are today. You know, I think the quandary that he addressed to Christians He was there speaking to some authors who had been talking about, uh, well, critiquing the marginalization of Christian discourse and Christian arguments in secular culture. He came back to say, look, if Christians really mean what they say, well, you heard him say it, then we need to be very clear that we believe that what we are asserting is true and thus uh, that which is against it, contradictory to it, is false. But that doesn't fit too well. Not, not in terms of the participatory democracy, the, the the process culture of rational discourse in a secular society. And that's why we find ourselves in a very different situation than in recent decades or in, in recent centuries for sure. The challenge isn't going to go away. It, it may change in terms of the contours of the discussion, in terms of some of the particulars of debate, but the challenge is out there. And that's why talking with someone like Stanley Fish becomes and exercise in thinking through some of the, these most urgent issues, because Stanley Fish also writes and speaks with respect to religious conviction. And yet you have to wonder, how does that situate itself in the larger intellectual climate of postmodern America? Stanley Fish is a provocateur, and that's one of the most interesting things about talking to him. He does start conversations that reverberate long after he's left the room, and I think he finds delight in that. That's why I find a conversation with him not only interesting and uh, unexpected and uh, even uh, unpredictable, but fruitful. Because I do find myself thinking about many of these things long after the, the verbal conversation has ended. When I talk with Stanley Fish, I also think about some other really important issues that face us. That's why we were able to talk about the modern university. Few people have had the kind of experience he has had and frankly earned the enemies he has earned just in terms of a conversation about things like academic freedom uh, or what we weren't even able to talk about today, and that is the interpretation of texts. But something else becomes clear in this. When I asked Stanley Fish to describe himself theologically, well, he doesn't want to do that. He speaks with respect and, for that matter, great knowledge about Christian texts and Christian literature, but he's speaking as someone who is speaking to us rather than as one of us that's why christians need to risk more conversations like this we need to have conversations that take us outside the christian sphere of conversation and meaning outside our church communities and our christian institutions to have a conversation with those who are very much a part of the larger intellectual environment if we do not then let's face it we're just talking to ourselves and there's no reason just to talk to ourselves if we think we're serving the cause of the gospel Thanks for joining me today for Thinking in Public. I want you to know about something very special happening on the Southern Seminary campus. On Friday and Saturday, February 11 and 12 of 2011, Southern Seminary will be hosting the annual Give Me an Answer conference for college students. This year's theme is Recalibrate. I'll be speaking, as well as our own Dr. Russell Moore and special guest C.J. Mahaney. We want to challenge students to focus on true theology while living a life of humble obedience. For more information, visit spts.edu. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.